Welcome back to Composer Quest. I'm your host, Charlie McCarran, Minneapolis composer, and I started this show because I wanted to share insights from other composers and songwriters about how they make music. You can hear all the episodes at ComposerQuest.com. You loyal listeners out there are probably wondering about the results of the first ever Composer Quest Quest. If you're new to the show, this first challenge was to arrange pop songs or movie themes for a bassoon, clarinet, and oboe trio. And we got six submissions from across the globe. Caleb Hines in St. Louis, Missouri arranged the Captain America theme. Ryan Blanton in Texas arranged Bad Romance by Lady Gaga. Brian Delaney, also in Texas, arranged the song from Portal 2. John Brian Evans in New York arranged I Want You Back by the Jackson 5. And Jay Wilson in Taiwan arranged the Nerdist theme song. And I also threw my hat in the ring. I arranged Madness by Muse. So I'm really excited to hear how these arrangements will turn out when the Twin Cities Trio plays them live. I'm planning a Composer Quest concert here in the Twin Cities, which will feature some of the artists I've had on the show. And if you're not in Minnesota, I'm going to set up a live webcast of the concert. So, stay tuned for that. In this episode, I talk with jazz pianist and composer George Maurer. George has been a working composer for over 20 years, so he has plenty of words of wisdom to share about the music business, about collaborating with others, and about arranging for all sorts of instrumentalists and vocalists. George also makes use of my piano and plays a few examples from his new musical, Empire Builder, about a time-traveling train. So on to my talk with George Maurer. George, thanks for joining me here. Absolutely. Yeah. I took a songwriting class with George, and one thing that stuck out at me in that class was when you were talking about making it as a musician slash composer. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that you don't have to have a full-time job, and that was kind of inspiring to me. You don't have to have a like nine-to-five regular job. day job, yeah, and you can make it work if you... It, you can, yeah. It takes time, and it takes sticking with it. Last night at the Dakota, I went down to hear some young musicians and jazz performers perform, and they're all talking about having a day job, but really wanting to do their art, but knowing that what they do with their art isn't necessarily going to pay the bills. And there was a guy who's been in the business a long time sitting at the table with them, quietly nodding his head and saying, hey, you know, it'll pay off. Was there a certain point where you chose the path you're on right now where you thought, well, I want to stick to my art? I left a regular paycheck and benefits in uh, the end of June of 1992. So I had been four years out of college and was slowly starting to make a name for myself. And then it came to a point where I could make a better salary and income than I was working in college admissions, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It happened 21 years ago. I haven't looked back. So nice. So you studied music business? Music composition, business minor, which was kind of unheard of at, at that time. You didn't combine the fine arts and business, you know? Yeah. But I meet so many musicians who don't know how to network they don't want to network or they don't know how to market themselves or describe what they do. They don't know how to put together uh, a resume or a bio. They don't know how to look through a contract before they sign it, you know. So I think it's smart to pick up a little bit of accounting and pick up a sense of economics. Yeah. Do you have a couple pieces of advice for 
listeners out there who are struggling with promoting themselves? Get to know a real good graphic artist person. Learn how to barter. If uh, somebody needs a little soundtrack for something that they're doing, don't be stickler about needing to get royalties on it. If it's just something for a simple commercial, you know, understand when and where those moments are and develop those kind of relationships. I, I did that 26 years ago when I was still at St. John St. Ben's and there was a author of children's books and he wanted to make a recording of him reading it and he wanted a soundtrack. And so I took an old four track recorder and created music for him for that. And he's been designing and developing the artwork for every single one of my albums and CDs ever since. I send him a case of CDs every time he develops something for me because he refuses to send me an invoice, you know. <laughs> and he takes all those CDs and hands them out to his top clients at Christmas time. So huh? that gets all of that music out there, you know, and gets those people aware of who I am. So learn, learn how to barter and learn how to get creative and learn how to collaborate collaborating with with other people you know whether it's another musician or whether it's a, a lyricist and you get connected to their people in their world and their listeners and that sort of stuff and be willing to jump across disciplines if you're a composer who not only composes a certain style maybe com- consider other styles or hybrids of your style nowadays i'm writing jazz for ballet music theater independent film arranging for full symphony orchestras and then my own stuff but that's all built over time and saying, I want to stretch and I'm going to say yes to something that I have no idea how to do it, but I know I can do it. You know. Mm-hmm. What have you learned from working with this ballet? You've worked with a couple ballet ballets. dancers think in eights, not in four. So when you want to develop a phrase, it's got to be eight beats and eight counts because they need to get time from one end of the stage to the other. Working with a choreographer is almost like one of the easiest things in the world, at least the ones that I've worked with, because they give you a concept, they give you an idea about maybe how long the song should be, about what they want to do, you know, with a piece. They generally like what, what you give them. You just adjust here and there, and you got to imagine movement as you write something and leave breathing space. Simplicity is almost key. Dance is one form of art that I I don't know that I know how to appreciate it as a storytelling <clears throat> thing. I don't know. Start going to see dance. You know, if, especially if it's connected with your style of music. Pull up YouTube videos and start checking out things. And I'm not talking about stiff, one-dimensional, one-camera angle kind of stuff, but look for stuff that's layered and you get to look at it from different angles or you get to see the creative process happening or you see something being built from the ground up. And that's what I do when I work with St. Paul City Ballet is the very first thing I did is I went and watched a few ballet rehearsals. I didn't write a note of music. I went and watched. Experiential research is key. Yeah. You know. So your newest project, Empire Builder? Empire Builder, yeah. What was the inspiration for that? Well, I'll set this up a little bit. First of all, I've always been fascinated with trains. My grandma Palm worked until she was 86 and traveled by train every day. So she always lived by the railroad tracks. And whenever we visited as kids, I was more interested in standing out by the railroad crossing, you know, without making my mother nervous, and waving to the engineers as they went by on big diesel engines. And I just always have this 
image of trains and the mournful sound of a train whistle, you know, sort of things. I always had this fascination. The uh, four kids in my family, whenever we turned 10, I was the first to turn 10, and then my three siblings, mom took us to Chicago on the Amtrak. So I got to ride the train, you know, from Minneapolis to Chicago, and when you're 10 years old, but 10-year-olds do that, you know. I mean, there's something about seeing people's backyards and industrial parks and, and seeing a town from a different angle, which is not from the road. All you can do is look out the window, and you're at the mercy of wherever the train's going. I really like working with a lyricist by the name of Ann Bertram. I said, I've always wanted to write something about trains. And so we placed our story on a train, leaving Chicago's Union Station. And the train, instead of making a station stops where the conductor calls out Columbus, Wisconsin, Fargo, North Dakota, Wolf Point, Montana, will say, next stop, 1898. And only one character on the train, uh, a Blackfoot Indian who's heading home to Cutbank, Montana, hears the conductor say this, and, and he steps off the train into the year 1898. Each time the train stops, it's in a different year in Cutbank, Montana. And he learns a bit of his story, of his family past, of something that happened that created this chasm between his grandfather and him, who he's going home to see because grandfather's dying. But grandfather gave him up for adoption at the age of nine, and he's never forgiven his grandfather for that, and he had an idea in his mind as to why this happened. But these stops by the train are showing him it's not what he thought it was. So how do you tell this elaborate story? <clears throat> Through music, music and everything? Well, yeah. I've done so much jazz arranging, working with the architects of rock and roll and arranging their music, from Buddy Holly's Crickets to the Chiffons to rock and roll stuff from the 80s from when I was in college, uh, that I kind of went, well, I, since this train travels in time and in eras that are in eras that I've written music in, so I'm picking music, period, music from each era as the train travels in time, and then gradually as the train moves to other station stops, 1919, 1966, and so on, the music is going to follow. One of the train stops is 1919, right at the end of World War One, and I wrote music for a movie that was about the Battle of the Somme in France during World War I, and so I picked a period style and feel, but still kept my composer's voice in there. So I'm like, well, good, I get to revisit that era, but now I'm going to have a, a brass band welcoming the soldiers home in a small town in Montana. Now, what historically in, in Cutbank, Montana, what was their little hometown band? So I'm going to go to the, the historical society. I've already got pictures. I can see what the makeup of the band was and go, okay, you know, I'm going to make it a brass band and I'm going to take a listen to some different uh, composers and styles at that time. And then I also have my thread that's going all the way through the show. There's, you know, motifs that are going to reappear and how do I apply that to this brass band feel. And so the opening number of, of Empire Builder... My motif, which I'm going to be pulling on, um, are just basically uh, three notes, um, which is going to appear in various spots throughout this entire piece, but inverted in different ways and so on. But something I wanted to have was a feeling of motion. And so this little phrase was the first thing that kind of popped out of my fingers and I started building on it. We have the introduction of our first major character. His name is Jimmy. He's uh, 
white collar, mid 40s, kind of like uh, Sam the Eagle from the Muppet show, conservative, American values, in love with the romanticism of the Great Northern Railroad. And so I wanted to create an anthem for him. The painting of him, I've got mandolin in the background, I've got accordion, piano, and then a little bit of a military drum beat, you know, way in the distance, you know, evoking glory days kind of thing. When we knew bad from good, when we knew where we stood, we had pride in our nation, and always had time for friendly conversation. Empire Builder, give me one last ride. But this anthem that he sings is in conjunction to a hip intellectual black woman named Dr. Holder, who's our other major character, whose ancestors worked the railroad and helped build the railroad. When she pops in, we got authentic 1957 Hammond B3 organ. Daddy, who ran the engine? Won't you tell me? Won't you tell me? I used the same chord structure and changes under both of them, knowing that later on in the show I'm going to layer the two of them on top of each other and have their melodies in intertwine. What was it you And then in each one of these turnarounds, from his into hers, we have this motif. Which is that same thing we opened up with. When you're taking these motives and placing them in different eras, is it the instrumentation more that changes, or is it your composition style, or...? I let the composition style do the changes, and I do these kind of subconsciously. I don't realize I'm doing it until all of a sudden it's kind of there. So you had to trust your intuition and your instinct. I try and just throw the notes down on the page, you know, let Finale just kind of put everything down, and then I strip away melody and kind of redistribute that and paint later. But I, it's the sketch, you know, the piano is the sketch. Uh, there are certain points that as I'm going along, I'll put a little note in the Finale score and say, flute's here or guitar, or fretless bass, or whatever. But I try not to put a bunch of staves up and look at all of this real estate and go, how am I going to fill all that? But I, I build the piano score first, and then I go, okay, where am I going to distribute this to? And the bass line, the left-hand stuff, is usually you know the easy part. Quite often, I'll just block piano and do like the footballs or half notes and just kind of outline chords. So... to that that's kind of very churchy and hymn like there you know so but it's and it does sound a little bit like you know journey you know yeah. sort of thing but it's just slightly different enough does harmony and harmonic progressions come to you first before you have melodies or is it kind of a mix they kind of come with but they're they're a split second before is usually how it happens Chord changes are important for me, and key centers are important. If you don't start off in the right key for something, especially if you're working with lyric, it, it won't inspire you to write in the right sort of way, I think, or make decisions. I like F as a good open kind of bright key, but the opening number of, of Empire Builder, I realized I was working with a baritone who had a wide vocal range, and I kind of wanted to capitalize on that, because this is in C, 
Initially, before it was in C sharp minor, D flat major or C sharp. Um, so a half step made uh, all the difference, difference to the feel of of that whole section. That's something I haven't thought about as much. It's like I sometimes think of keys as being all similar, just yeah, you know. But then when I started doing a little more capoing on guitar, yeah, and singing. The mm -hmm. melodies and mm -hmm. it is amazing how a half step can change yeah, especially with voices especially yeah. also when you think about the instruments that you're writing with and the range that you want you know and being aware of what the high end of a flute and if you got a flute playing below an f and the, the c is the lowest a flute can go and you're trying to have them play in that range at forte which they really can't it's very breathy and you're playing against something else it's never going to cut through so you either have to decide, well, I'm going to use up in here and get more of that warmth and color for the flute's range, or I'm going to take that and double it with a, a bassoon or a, or oboe, or change the dynamics, or strip away something else that's happened, like get rid of the piano in that section and just let something else happen. I will be there, take me there. If I'm writing for a specific vocalist, the very first thing I say to them, okay, what's your sweet zone? What's the range that you operate best in between? What are your money notes? What are the highest notes I can put you on? I will be there. Well, what have you learned from orchestrating a full like symphony orchestra? <clears throat> really have learned the importance for me of working with a co-arranger who knows a lot more about the instruments than I do. I work with Ken Vork. He's the guy that buffs and polishes all of my scores when I'm done with them because I want them print ready and he just knows how to place a dynamic marking and uh, how to really make it look presentable. He's nitpicky. When I get these uh, arrangements that I've done for Minnesota Orchestra on the pop side, Ken will say, well, here's the rule of thumb for when you're working with horn and F, and you're working with four horns and Fs. Four horns and F don't act like two violins and a viola and a cello. You can't think about it as an SATB thing. You know, horn number two normally doubles trombone one, or whatever the formula is, you know, in order to create these colors. And so I learned a lot about sketching things out and using a brass section and dynamically brass can blow anything out of the water you know but strings have to really work at it and woodwinds especially too what i've learned how to do is how to paint with sections how to bring sections in and bring them out or leave certain voices and, and pair them up with something a, a bassoon works really nicely with a cello and with a baritone voice they kind of have some of the same timbres and you can create all kinds of cool colors if you got a bassoon and a cello or a couple bassoons in the cello section kind of sawing away and doing their thing. You know, when you bring in the piccolo flute and really rip it up on the top end there, they can get pretty hard up there and help punctuate a section. When do you use that tuba? Because he's sitting there picking his nose as well. You know, what are you going to do with him? You know, well, here comes this really cool bass line and let's pop the tuba in at a certain moment. So you just kind of learn about the character and roles of various instruments, you know, harp, don't forget the harp, timpani, he's got to roll it every now and then, you know. And it's funny because I've done arrangements for symphonies. I just did something uh, that's traveling to about 20 different symphonies around the country, and we had debuted it in Houston. I had the Houston Symphony. I had a double bass come up to me after the concert, 
And the double bass said, it's so cool, your voicings, because uh, we had electric bass in with this that is part of this. It's all rock and roll music. So I let the electric bass carry its normal lines, and I didn't want the double bass to get in the way, but I wanted the double basses to do something. And so I was treating them more as a kind of a special kind of cello or doing something really. He's like, I've never seen double. Normally we're just sawing there on the root, and we're bored as hell, but you had, you know, this was fun. I had a horn two player come up to me and say, you had me playing higher than horn one. Do you know I never get to do that. And it was really cool because it was just for a moment and it didn't piss off horn number one at all that he didn't get the, the role, you know. He says, but he gave it to me, you know. And he's like, no one does that. And I'm like, I had no idea what I was doing. I just decided I wanted horn tune to go up. So trust your intuition, Yeah, I guess, is what it comes down to, too, in your ear. Well, but cool also to... have also have a co-arranger who is going to check your work. Sure. If you're going to... Because I don't have a master's. I don't. I didn't go and do all this, but... It's where I am. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's where I happen to be at the moment. So, well, that's cool. Yeah, I I like the idea of breaking rules with orchestras a little bit. Yeah, if yeah. they can yeah. physically play them. Yeah, why are they, yeah they're necessarily these rules that I was uh, analyzing a, a solo uh, uh, from a, a time of the season by the Zombies. You know. Um, the season plink 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 you know it's the uh, pizzicato on the strings but there's this in the original recording there's a, an organ solo from the original recording i i uh transcribed it and i kind of went oh in the original uh orchestral arrangement i put that all in the strings so all the strings are kind of When we got to the first rehearsal for this, the conductor, all of a sudden I was noticing he had to work that section with the strings. He kept working it and working it and working. Oh, I said, cool, great. You know, he's getting, but I didn't realize that I was wasting their time and the string player's time because he had to work the section because it's not typical to throw in grace notes and these kind of angulars for, for classical string players to have to go. You know, it's just a lot of moving of the bow, and I wasn't thinking. I'm like, oh, cool, I'll throw this in the strings. Met with him afterwards. He's like, throw that in the woodwinds. And so I completely moved it all up to the flutes and the oboes and pulled in the bassoons and brought in the clarinets, you know. And so I got this section now where they're all up there going, because the fingers are more nimble, you can pull that off. And then um, what I had the woodwinds doing before that was... So now I got the string is going, you know, not pizzicato, but just kind of accent. And it worked. It like I flipped it and went, oh, okay, I shouldn't, you know. So there's sometimes when Finale's going to play it back really nice for you, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, great, you know. But And never trust a studio mix if you're working with like Phil Spector wall of sound. You know, because everything is not the real world, because you're compressing stuff in the studio and you're all this other stuff. And so we've got um, Ike and Tina Turner's uh, River Deep Mountain High. We were trying to figure out why it didn't sound the same or wasn't feeling the same. And I had to really, really mess with dynamics and let more of the rhythm section carry this piece. So you learn. Yeah. I can spend all day here in your bedroom playing this piano. Sorry, dude. Go, go walk the dog. I'm going to play with the piano. Well, silent movies. 
piano players, you know, you and I got good incomes because we'd go to the movie theaters and we'd watch the screen and we'd paint the action. Have you ever done a silent movie? I would love to, actually. But I, I have, in a way... Strangely enough, being a church musician in the Catholic Church, you are quite often painting the meditative time while the priest clears up the altar and goes and sits back down with improvised music that's either based off of something or it's reacting. I'm always looking up. Well, I think one thing that, that every composer should do when they're putting notes to page, never assume that what you've just put to the page is the final authority or the final feel of what you want to do, especially... The jazz musician in me says, well, here's this. But what if you kind of like um, mess with the time signature? You know, or mess with the tonal center, uh, you know. So be willing to kind of like shake up what you're writing. So what do people who don't have your piano <clears throat> skills do? Um, if you're a composer who is working with garage band, there's loops, there's grooves, there's beats, there's whatever. Set up a different beat if you're going to do something looping. Slow some things down if you need to. And play it in to your score and then mess with the tempo to speed it up. In Finale, you can do human playback, you can do different ways of swinging, you can play in different styles, and it'll play it back with a certain feel. If you're using a music workstation, you can do the same thing. Or uh, to go back to that whole barter thing and get your good guitar player friend to come over and play it for you. You know, like, I don't play guitar, but I got to write for guitar. And I got to write rockabilly music on one of these pieces, and I've worked with a lot of rockabilly musicians, but I'm like, okay, I can evoke this as much as possible, but now I got to get real musicians in the door and hear what it sounds like. And those are the aha moments when you have a real vocalist come over and try and sing what your computer score is playing perfectly back to you and sounds so pretty. And then you get a vocalist to sing it and they're like, what the hell is this? You know, or <laughs> why are you doing this? Or that's why we workshop stuff. That's why we read through things. Uh, I live on Nicollet Island and so Prudence Johnson, who sings on Prairie Home Companion and has her own wonderful vocal career, lives downstairs. Leslie Ball from Ball's Cabaret is right next door. I got Dane Stauffer in the next house over, all music theater. And so I'm like, hey, come on over and borrow a cup of sugar and sing a song for me, you know, sort of thing. How did you get involved with this artist collective that you <clears> live <throat> with? Uh, I wanted to live in a place that I felt like I was out in the country, but I was in the cities and there was an opening on Nicollet Island and I was aware of all the artist co-op on the top end of that island and I lucked out and got my foot in the door. Artists usually end up around other artists and I think it's good to be in a setting where you have opportunities for collaboration or to have neighbors who understand what you do or have a partner who does what you do because you, you need those moments where you're undisturbed but you also need those moments where you're inspired. And for me to look out my window on Nicollet Island and to see art in my yard because there's a, a potter down the road or for my neighbors to hear my jazz group rehearsing at my place, you know, on a summer day and we throw the windows open or for me to come home to my front porch and see Leo Kaki picking guitar. And it's like, wow, I like being around artists. Well, George, it's uh, been a pleasure having you here. Yeah, nice. And it's, yeah. Still got some latte left, even though it's a little bit cold, but this has been <laughs> nice, you know. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Composer Quest with George Maurer. 
For more of George's music, you can visit georgemauer.com. And Maurer is spelled M-A-U-R-E-R. As always, if you've enjoyed listening to the show and want to say hi, you can find ComposerQuest on Facebook or Twitter. I'll leave you with a sample of another George Maurer song called You Don't See Me. See you.